I know how the internets work. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. The Charlotte Mason Online Conference is coming back for a short reprise next week, September 23 through 27. It is the five days, 25 pre-recorded workshops that took place back in June with five new speakers, new swag bags, and lifetime access to all the talks. So if you didn't sign up last time for the Charlotte Mason Online Conference, definitely do so now. There's a lot of good information, a lot of good stuff that was said. So go check out our show notes. We'll have a link up there. If you did previously sign up for it and pay for it, then you still have access to it now. So go log in, check it out, check out the new speakers. It will be very much well worth your time. So this week, we're talking about chapter 21, a scheme of educational theory proposed to parents. Any initial thoughts on this chapter? I feel like it has two sections. She talks about education and who its target is and what its aim is. Mm -hmm. And then she talks about her two main objects in education. I kind of felt the same. And and then she dives a tiny bit into how, but not really, not in not in this chapter. She kind of I I think chapter twenty two, a catechism of educational theory, which we haven't gotten there. I haven't even really looked at it. I think that is more of the hows for her. So this seemingly this would be a two part introduction to Charlotte Mason and her theory I think of education. So. From like a 30,000 foot level. I think so. Which as I was doing the audio for this, I felt like this chapter is a really good one to kind of just say, hey, you want an introduction to Charlotte Mason? Read this chapter. Mm -hmm. And then as I was rereading it, I was realized it wasn't quite as good as I was thinking. But still, the second half is really good. The second half is really good. And I think there's a lot of value in it. The first half of it, it's there because it has to set up the scene. Yeah. So so in the first half, she talks about society being broken down into two basic classes, poor children or children of poor parents and children of educated parents. Or, as she puts in another place, lettered and unlettered. But that's... That's skipping ahead. It, it is. It is skipping ahead. But that's... I mean, that's where she's going with this first, this first half. And honestly... I didn't have much. There there wasn't much that jumped off the page to me about the first half of this chapter. Then let's back up to the first sentence mm-hmm. because she references a book called A French Eaton by Mr. Matthew Arnold. Do you remember Matthew Arnold? Sure. You don't, do you? No. He was the... This isn't the chapter on lying, so I can lie now. <laughs> He was the um, school inspector. Oh yeah, okay. And he was the him. one who came with, who came up with the phrase "education is an atmosphere, a discipline, and a life." That's right. Yeah, he was the school inspector who was also a poet. Yes, that one. Yeah. And that's back <laughs> in chapter. That was a while ago. Chapter four, it's page oh, thirty-two. Everything goes four. back to chapter four. Everything goes back to chapter four. Hey, if there's a chapter to read, it's chapter four. Right? Not not, not chapter 21. Uh, chapter chap- four. Chapter 21 is a good intro, but chapter four is a solid chapter that, that really dives into a lot of the early things that she talks about. Anyways, so A French Eaton is a book that he wrote. It He wrote it in 1864. But Eaton is actually in an independent boys boarding school founded in 1440. Whoa. In um England. Is it still active? Mhm. Wow. One of the few that are still only boys. It's for ages 13 to 18 and it the the Wikipedia was saying that prime ministers and all sorts of all sorts of high level echelon people come out of that school. So, wow. 
So yeah, talk about a, a relic from the past. What did you say? 1300? 1440. 14. Okay. When did Columbus sail the ocean blue? 1492. That school has been around longer than the European continent has known about the American continent. We're not even <laughs> talking crazy. about the United States as a nation. We're talking about the the continent the, of the, the dis- Americas. The discovery of the new world. Right? Now, yeah, okay. The The Vikings knew about it, whatever. We'll ignore them. The New World had not been discovered when that school had started. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I night. hadn't thought about that. That's a that's an old school. So he he makes this remark that she springboards off of in that education of each class has its own definite aim. And that sets off the next couple of paragraphs where education of poor and less lettered families and society is different than of higher education or of, of education of higher classes. Right. Those who are lettered. And she doesn't exactly agree with him that and she's like, eh, it's you're kind of right, but it gives us a place to start. Right. And then I like this remark, the fathers, well, Shouldn't we have fathers in education just as well as theology? (laughs) I thought that was cute. Their original thought was to the children of the poor. Right. Because everyone else had tutors. Because, yeah, because the children of the educated, their parents are actively working to educate their children. Mm -hmm. And the working class poor cannot do that because they are working. Right. So the schools that were started for uh, the, the Sunday school that was started was for poor children. The Sunday schools, the uh, charity schools, the public schools. Right. And so they had to start with something basic as having a vocabulary because children of educated parents already had that. And that yeah. has been borne out in studies nowadays. There, There's a couple of studies. One was done in 92 that's kind of been debunked. Where children who are spoken to or read to have a, a give or take one to three million word difference in having how many words they've heard than children that haven't been. Okay. Um, and so they, they enter, you know, age three, four, five, having that basis, which is so much greater. Right. So, but when you say it's been relatively debunked, what? They said 30 million word difference. Oh, okay. And so they've, people have redone it and found, yes, there is a gap. No, it's not quite as big as they said it was. It's not, it's not as big, but there is still a gap. Mm -hmm. So. Which makes sense. And kids who hear more vocabulary words, which are the ones that are in books, as opposed to just normal conversation, are going to be better prepared to see those words in print when they enter school. And then they're more likely to pick up reading skills more quickly and easily. So that original basis foundation. Right. And and that's what she's talking about here, where, you know, the child knows the words locomotive and uses uses those words yeah. in their vocabulary. Well, and so then when you see the word on the paper... You're reading the sentence, you see the word, and they might not have ever read the word before, but they'll get to it, they'll sound it out, and they'll go, oh, that's the word locomotive. Okay, cool. I know what that word is. And then you move on. You don't have to think about what that word is in context or look it up in a dictionary. You just – you know know what it is. And I I think that's where she's going with that's the the generational gifts that that happen. Yeah, I would agree. Where there is a difference – generationally as to how those classes interact with both education and with their children. So when we lived in New Mexico, I worked or I was overseeing the construction of a solar array up in Los Alamos. If you're not up on your history, Los Alamos is where the nuclear bombs were developed. So Los Alamos is where all of the ridiculously smart people from all across the nation were shipped in. And that's where they all lived. So Los Alamos is full of just redonkulously smart people. 
So anyway, I was at a I was at a McDonald's getting some lunch, and there was a family of four in front of me, mom, dad, and and two girls. And the girls were talking back and forth about where they were going to go to college. But they were they were talking back and forth about, you know, this college, that college, and and the reason they were talking about the college was not for the college itself, but how it was going to prepare them to go to grad school and how the grad school then was going to prepare them to get their PhD. And their parents were a part of the conversation being like, well, you know, yeah, you're right there. That that school's pretty good. This other one will will do you better that, you know, but this PhD program is so much better than that PhD program. And, you know, really, you might want to go into neurophysics instead of biochemistry, because while the field is just so much more exciting and engaging and the words this family was using, what they were talking about, it it blew my mind because I, I consider myself a decently educated person, but I felt like a moron. Standing behind these high school girls talking about what, where they were going to go get their PhDs. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to leave now. So I can attest personally to the fact that that's reality. That, that the, the, what she's talking about here in the classes and, and the fact that smart parents raise smart children. It's true. It's interesting coming back to this, to the to the text and seeing how she talks about how each class needs different things. Yeah. And it's it's a, a pendulum swing, mm-hmm. whether whether it's, you know, she says generations of physical toil do not tend to foster imagination. So these children who have whose parents, whose grandparents, whose great grandparents have all been this working class at, too busy and too tired and physically tired to do anything else Mm -hmm. they need help with the imagination or they need the games to be initiated for them right so that they'll be able to do that themselves swing the entirely opposite way and children of the culture class might live way too much in the realm of fancy and imagination and they need to know how to roll up their sleeves and do some work they they need to know uh where was it it doesn't say what they need it doesn't, but I would say that children, in in that instance, when you're talking about the pendulum, you talk about the the children of the working class parents needing help being imaginative. The children of the upper class parents need help learning how to work. Yeah, the the cultured class. The cultured class, and that's something honestly we're seeing in the United States right now, where. We have an entire generation of children who are a part of the cultured class, quote unquote, the millennial generation. We all went to college. We all graduated from college. And and by we all, I mean. Mass generalization. There. Right. There's a gen. Yeah. Very mass generalization. That generation is the, uh, they're intellectually savvy, but by and large, have a hard time sitting down and doing work. And that's... Well, and then that can go back to a couple chapters ago where we were talking about the examinations and it becoming the student's job to take tests. Right. To pass classes. Right. To the uh, detriment of everything else. Yeah, and we're seeing that borne out right now. To a certain extent. the, The end results, I think we are. But at the same time, they hear a single sentence in lesson or talk and they play at it for a week, inventing endless incidences. I don't see that happening in the millennials. Yeah, you're probably right. So it, it, I, I think the, the result is the same, but the, it's not due to the imagination. It's due to um, being entertained. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You're. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Because this, this is you know, imagination is ravenous for food. I mean, that's where where you know, flapping your wings like a pigeon or skipping as a lamb is is below them because they do they build forts and sieges and defense castles, but they'll they'll do that for the teacher if she asks them to. But there's so much bigger things in their minds. And I don't see that 
Again, very general. Yeah. Generally. This is a very, very general generalization. Yeah, it's a broad generalization. But I, I don't really see that in culture today. Yeah. And I mean, this is coming off of you playing D&D last night and and being a part of people building and using imagination. Yeah. So that that it's not that it's dead at, in any way stretch of the imagination, but it has changed and it's different. Yeah. Well, I, what I will say, and and like I was telling you last night after I came home, it was it was interesting to me the difference in the people at the table we were playing with last night. Some of us were willing to pretend to be the characters that we were being, and others at the table were unwilling to step out of themselves and try anything new and were very uncomfortable with the uh, telling a story and coming up with new things and imagining a conversation as it happens. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I've started sitting down with, with Ian and Naomi and going through a, uh, a role-playing book. Oh, what's the name of that book? Amazing Tales. Yeah. Amazing Tales. Uh, a great little book. If you're, if you're into uh, role-playing games or, or tabletop, dice rolling games it's a great introduction for little kids because it's simple it's easy you're just telling fun stories and the child gets to be a part of telling a fun story and then gets to roll some dice every once in a while but i don't really have to work to make ian and naomi tell a story i just give them some guidelines and give them some structure and and we let loose i mean we had a story about a princess and a dragon and then they went to mars because the dragon can fly to Mars and it's okay. They can breathe in space. Don't worry about it. And then they went to their underwater house. It was just the things that, that the, the places their imaginations went. I was like, Oh, okay, cool. That's utterly ridiculous, but whatever, we're going to play with it. You don't have to teach children to be imaginative. You have to teach children to lose their imagination. Then you have to cultivate it to keep it. You have to cultivate it. It's a muscle. Yeah. So, we should set up the mics just unobtrusively in the room. <laughs> well, I've thought about it. I, I, I might actually do that because um, we have we have the we have ability. the technology, just like the Million Dollar Man. Okay. Anyway, let's move on because uh, there was a there was a dead horse and then we beat it for a minute and then okay we ignorant to deficient. Beat it again. She's beating her dead horse about the development of faculties. She's really good at beating dead horses. She's got a whole herd of them that are dead <laughs> outside of her and house. Then, and then we get to the uh, education dividing along the lines of lettered and unlettered parents. And in fact, this class question, which we are all anxious to evade in common life, comes practically into force in education. It is necessary to individualize and say education for this child or this class, but it might be relegated to a lower place for another class. And I, I feel like that's her break. Yes, that's, that's the that's the the turning point in the chapter. That's the final thought on the last and the the f- start of the next. And I really like what she says here. She says each. Oh, where did it go? She says words she says, and things. She says words and things. She says it is necessary to individualize and say this part of education is the most important for this child or this class. Each child is an individual. And she gets into that in a little bit here, but each child is an individual. Each child needs different things. No two children need the exact same things out of a teacher. Or like she was mentioning, have the different faculties at different points. Right. That's something we're seeing with with our twins, Isaac and Lily. They develop so vastly differently that for a while I thought Isaac was slow slow of wit we'll we'll put it um to not use any more uh strong language um but i was getting nervous for him we were teaching them the sign for more which in our house we do clapping for more and lily got it pretty quick it took isaac another month to figure it out i think it was a full month it was a solid three of and him a half just weeks. staring at us and and she's over there just you know clapping away and he just kind of looks at you and goes, uh, 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 right. And then would get very upset when you would try and like make him clap his hands. But then one day, three and a half months later, or three and a half weeks later, she's like, oh yeah, no, I clap. And, and that's when you give me more. I get it. 
What are you so surprised about? Come on, guys. <laughs> this is just how it works. And I was like, dude, we've been waiting for this for three and a half weeks. I thought you were you were jelly brained over there. But apparently not. Well, and then so then we have uh, little strider bikes for both of them. And for a while they would push them, stand beside the bike and push it. And then Isaac got brave and started straddling the bike and kind of walking, but he wouldn't actually be near the saddle. He was just walking with it between his legs. He recently has started riding. And and by riding, I legitimately mean riding the bike and pushing himself along. Where Lily's still walking beside it. Mm-hmm. So even even with the two of them, we see that they're on such different trajectories and they're such different people, even though they're exactly the same age, plus or minus eight minutes. <laughs> so if that's what two children who are the exact same age, plus or minus in, eight minutes. In the exact same house, exact same parents. Same parents, same house, same rules, same toys, same place, same temperature, same climate. Same food. They're still so vastly different than clearly children of different ages are going to be vastly different. In different settings. Different situations. Different different geographical locations. Different climates. Different foods they've eaten their entire lives. They're, children are going to be vastly different because that's just who they are. We're all snowflakes. Who need to be educated with habits and ideas. Right. So moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Dead horse. But, but it goes back to each of these snowflakes need to form habits. Has to be beat into a snowball. So you can throw it at someone and hit him in the face. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, they do. <laughs> and as Thomas Akempis, again, back to chapter nine, page mm-hmm. 85, he wrote... One custom overcometh another? No, that's the quote here. He that's wrote the a, quote. He wrote a book or a poem or something. He wrote the the first study Bible. Oh, that's right. Devotion book. Yeah, the first devotional book. Um. So yeah, one custom overcometh another. Talks about habits. And she says, we already dealt with that question. We just need to remind parents that they know that habits are important. Mm-hmm. So in other words, go read the other stuff I've written. And the other things I've spoken about. Well, and she does that. She does that with two things here. The first is the form habits. So, so she says basically every parent's job is twofold: one, to form habits and character, and two, to give ideas. To nourish a child daily with loving, right, and noble ideas. And those are those are the parent's two main duties. Mm-hmm. And she says there are other – she moves on and says there are other educational principles which we bear in mind and work out. But for the moment, it, it's it's worthwhile for us to concentrate over these two facts. Mm-hmm. Oh, and as a corollary to recognize that the development of faculties is not the supreme object with the cultivated classes. classes. Just – she's in, the, in, her, in her section here that says these are our main topics and she says not that one. So I'm assuming, you know, the the development of faculties was the that was a big deal, the buzzword of the day, right? The educational buzzword where develop the faculties. And she's going, no, no habits, ideas, not faculties. Faculties, they're fine. That's ge- a generational thing, right? Just we're gonna focus. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then she moves on to talk about the material and spiritual principles of human nature. And Which I feel like this is kind of just yeah. Now we're now, now we're now kind of in put in there, I guess. Well, so I I think this is where she starts her rehash of everything we've read up until this point. Right, we're now going to go through some of her educational principles. We talk about material and spiritual principles because how do ideas happen? Well, they're spiritual. Uh, she says every habit has its beginning. The beginning is the idea which comes with a stir and takes possession of us. That's the spirit. So you have to know that the spirit is involved. And then she talks about we recognize the supreme educator. She says, God, the Holy Spirit, is himself the supreme educator. And we've talked about that already. That, there, was, there was a couple chapters on that. Dealing with the sacred and the secular. Mm-hmm. But again, that's, that's material we've covered already. 
We lay ourselves open to the spiritual impact of ideas, whether they're conveyed by the printed page, the human voice, or reach us without visible sign. Mm-hmm. So the three three ways that ideas can come to us, they're spiritual. Mm-hmm. So then she moves on to, she says, studies are valued as they present fruitful ideas. So, so that was kind of, there was a short rehash there. And then she dives into this one. She says, ideas may be evil or may be good. And to choose between the ideas that present themselves is the one responsible work of a human being. It's the power of choice that we would give our children. So it's our job as parents to teach our children how to choose between good and evil ideas or how to recognize a good or evil idea. How how to recognize a good and evil idea and to make sure that the ideas we give them have underlying fruitful ideas. Right. A subject which does not rise out of some great thought of life, we usually reject as not nourishing, not fruitful. And we usually, but not invariably, retain these studies which give exercise and habits of clear and orderly thinking to develop the habit of using your mind. Right. Mathematics, grammar, mm-hmm. logic. And they they were they develop that intellectual muscle even more than I again than their devalue in developing the faculties. It's the exercising of the muscle and the intellectual habits mm-hmm. that these provide. Even even with math right now, Ian's moving into doing addition and subtraction and and moving to vertical. And I made a point of saying, line everything up. You've got to keep everything in a line. It's it. Yeah, you can read it right now. Right now is not what I'm working on. I'm working on your math in 10 years. So you can understand it then. Long division, multiplication of large multi-digit numbers. Yeah. So that's that's the muscle that's being educated. So then she moves on to nature knowledge. Okay. This is actually fascinating. Because I do the looking up of stuff and you don't. Oh, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. <laughs> you were about to say you don't have anything highlighted though. No, I, I do. I do oh, okay. because I've, I find it interesting. What I was going to say though is that nature knowledge and object lessons are – she's again kind of rehashing things she's talked about already. That, that's what I was going to say. Okay. So it concerns us more that he should know bistort from pes- persicaria, hawkweed from dandelion, then epa. Ep- Epagonus and hypogonus. I know what a dandelion is. <laughs> so I, I can guess what a hawkweed is because it's next to a dandelion. Bistort and and persicaria have the same uh, in in your kingdom phylum class order family genus species. They have the same order, the same phylum, and the genus is. Persicaria. And and nowadays Bistort has its own genus. And then the species is the only thing that's different. So they are they are very, very similar. So she wants you to know the difference not just between like a sunflower and a dandelion. She wants you to know the difference between a sunflower and a sunflower. Yeah. And same with same with hawkweed, same order, same family, same subfamily, same tribe, which I didn't know. They had tribes and subfamilies. <laughs> and it gets down to subtribe before the dandelion and the hawkweed are different. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. So it's not it's not the major differences that she wants you to see. It's it's the minute things. To but, be so observant that you can look at the two leaves and notice a subtle difference between them. The leaves or the flowers and and know that they're similar and then know the the little tiny differences. The epogonus and the hypogonus is whether the ovary is enclosed in the receptacle with the stamens or other floral parts situated above or the stamens and the floral parts are situated below the carpels. So that's the scientific part where she says, yeah, okay, it's good to know that later in life but you're supposed to learn it and study it and draw it and color it from what you can see before you learn about all of this yeah 
our diving first, into it. Our first thought with regard to nature knowledge is that the child should have a living personal acquaintance with the things he sees. So I, I found that because I didn't know the difference. Like you said, I knew dandelion. <laughs> and and so I looked up the two pictures of the first two and I was like, wait, that's the same thing. <laughs> Granted, you know, it's a picture on the computer from far away, but they looked the same. But they're the same. Well, it's because they are. Basically. Exactly. Interesting. So we move on to object lessons then. And we literally just talked about object lessons in one of the recent chapters. So, again, quick rehash here. Now I need to find it. Well, while you're finding it, I'll go ahead and read this quote. She says, we would prefer not to take the edge off his curiosity in this way. We should rather leave him receptive and respectful for one of those opportunities for asking questions and engaging in talk with his parents about the lock in the river the mowing machine, the plowed field, which offer real seed to the mind of a child and do not make him a priggish little person able to tell all about it. Chapter 17. Sensations and feelings. Sensations educable by parents. Right. So you can do object lessons where the child will learn to describe things as opaque, brittle, malleable, and so on. But what we really want is a child to be able to see what an object is in relation with other things and observe. To ask questions. To ask questions about it and observe what it does. Mm -hmm. Not just know things. So then we start talking about books. And this is where I don't think so far we've really talked much about books and reading. And so she says, we know that there is a storehouse of thought wherein we may find all the great ideas that have moved the world. We are above all things anxious to give the child the key to this storehouse. The education of the day, it is said, does not produce reading people, but we are determined that the children shall love books. Therefore, we don't interpose ourselves between the book and the child. Mm-hmm. And I would agree wholly with that today. Today's educational system does not produce reading people. We don't try to break it up, water it down, but leave the child's mind to deal with the matter as it can. Whereas children's entertainment of the day tries to dumb things down and turn it into flashy entertainment. Even children's textbooks, where they take a snippet of a book. This frustrated me to no end was my literature book in specifically, I want to say either fourth grade or sixth grade, because I was in the Dodd schools in those ones, the public school. That would be Department of Defense. Yes. But I had my (laughs) literature book and I would finish whatever the thing was and I would read from it and I would get these snippets of these stories and then it would not be the whole thing. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's all I had to read because that's what I I had to sit at my desk and that's what I had to read. So it was very, very disheartening. Well, and I think – so she's diving into the next little section here. She says we do not recognize child nature. But before we dive that far, um, I do want to say there are many resources nowadays for finding these really good books. And we have a glut of, of books at the library that dumb things down. Yeah. So there are there are, there are groups and people that have made lists, book lists. Uh, most of the curriculums have book lists. Reshelving Alexandria is a really good one. Um, it's based off of you know a play on the the library at Alexandria that burned, where they would collect everything. Their their goal is to collect the best, only the good stuff. And so there's there's some amazing resources there. There's an older book that I have called Honey for the Child's Heart, which my mom had. And it's got just quality books, mm-hmm. ti- timeless type stuff. Um, the other thing is I in my Facebook group, we have both a Facebook page and a group. In the group, my point is to give access and list out a bunch of resources. And so I'm listing a bunch of places you can get good book lists or find books. and So if you're interested in any of those things, 
go check out the Facebook group. Yep. And if you need to know how a Facebook group works, then you can email us at charlottemasonsays.com, which is what you cannot email at Charlotte no, you Mason can't email says at Charlotte says, says that. You'd have to email us at Charlotte Mason says at gmail.com. I know how the internets work. No, what I was going to say is I was going to make a joke that I don't know how Facebook works, but clearly I don't even know how the internet works. So I would be one that would try and email a website and – Oh, gosh. Well, if you're listening to a podcast, hopefully that means you know not to email a website. Um, anyway, uh, get on Facebook and and figure out figure out Crystal's page and group, even though I don't know what those things are. John's in charge of Instagram. All he does is post pictures. I, I have Facebook, in my opinion, is the most worthless platform ever because I don't get it and I don't care to understand it. No, so what I was going to say is she talks about she talks about that first. She says, uh, the education of the day, it is said, does not produce reading people. And you were saying that – or no, she goes on and says uh, we shouldn't water things down. One of the reasons I think things get watered down for children is, a, is in this next section. She says we do not recognize child nature. She says we don't recognize what is called child nature because we believe – that children are human beings at their best and sweetest, but also at their weakest and least wise. I, I really liked that description. That was really good. But Charlotte Mason has a deep belief, a deep-seated belief that children are persons at, with with all of the rights and responsibilities of persons. They're just small persons. Mm-hmm. And as persons – if if you treat a child as a person, you're not going to water things down. You're not going to ignore things. You might not have them read the book because it has it has some themes that aren't appropriate for children. But you're not going to take the book and and cut it down and slash it up and edit it to the nth degree. Uh, we were we listened to Paddington Paddington Bear. Uh, we, we took a, we took a camping trip last weekend for Naomi's birthday. And on the way out there and back, we were listening to the audiobook Paddington. Well, we have a Paddington picture book, which, uh, if it, it goes through like the first chapter of the actual book, but it thoroughly edited mm-hmm. the book. To the point where we had been listening for five minutes, and I and I went, "Oh, we just made it to the second page, yeah, of of the book of our picture book that we had." And and so it have it, we still have it? We still have it because it's a it's a cute little picture book. But it drove into my mind that the reality of, hey, someone wrote an actual book, and there's language in it, and there's there's character development, and there's vocabulary, and there's conversation, and talking, and emotion, and all of that gets lost in the board book. You know what's really cool? Hmm. The last couple of times we've gotten in the car, they've asked to listen to Paddington. Oh. Yeah. Have you been listening to it? No, I actually picked up um, another one. I picked up the James Harriet Treasury for Children. Okay. So we, which are shorter stories. So in the 10 minutes that we drive, 10, 15 minutes we drive, we can get one story in. That makes a lot of sense. But yeah, it's the idea of they're they're persons. So why would we we water it down for them? I'm going to tangent a little bit here. Um, Because as I was reading this uh, part about we do not recognize child nature, it reminded me of this article that I was given – Five years ago now, it's called Who Invented Adolescence? <laughs> An essay exploring a theology of growing up, a social history of adolescence, and suggestions for faithfulness. And this is available online, so I'll link to that in the show notes. It's by, um, by Marty Keys. By Marty Keys. I'm seeing on your paper. Through Ransom Fellowship. And it, it goes into what really is a teenager. You know, there's the the stigma negative stigma with the dread of oh my goodness you're gonna have a teenager you're gonna have this 
person who's going to try you and the storm and stress and alienation and conflict and rebellion. And this, this, uh, author said that she was stopped in her tracks by a, a mother who's was older than her who said, Oh no, I don't believe in adolescence. Our children have always been our friends and they're still our friends. And I have no reason to believe that they're about to stop being our friends just because they're entering their teens. Hmm. That 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 constructed time period in life is a new phenomenon, and it's perpetuated by culture. Yeah, well, that's definitely true. And then going into this, it's it's talking about the the change in 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 people and how children work. It talks about. Uh, age segregation and then the invention of invention of adolescence and where these youth become consumers as opposed to producers Mm -hmm. in society and so then it goes into what can we do about that it was a fascinating article when i read it then i really want to reread it now but that that idea that there's a continuum as opposed to stair steps Mm -hmm. of life as a part of life, you learn, you you grow, you read these amazing books, you get struck by ideas, and that's regard irregardless of age. Right. And that, that gets more into to high school years, where you and I aren't there yet. Nope. Thankfully. Not yet. <laughs> we have to get through uh, the early years first. Yeah. But we will be, and we will be there shortly, because, you know, everyone says time flies. Time's supposed to fly when you're having fun. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> Always. <laughs> no, that's a good point. So it it was, I, again, a tangent. Not really what she's talking about, but that brought that to my mind. It did. Well, and that brings up the extended adolescence of people in their 20s and 30s still acting like teenagers. Yeah. In today's society. And the fact that nobody wants to grow up because growing up is hard and we don't want to do hard things. So, let's see. We do not recognize child nature. So, then the next section, we are tenacious of individuality. We consider proportion. She says, in a word, we are very tenacious of the dignity and individuality of our children. We recognize steady, regular growth with no transition stage, which is exactly what you're talking about. That's probably where I got it. <laughs> probably in that in that next sentence. She's saying that, that children grow, but they grow on a continuum. Not not well you're you're in your terrible twos now. Well, you turn three. You're no longer in your terrible twos. You're now, now you're three now you're three. Have you heard that one? Three nature? Three now, gosh. It's so true, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have teenagers yet. But you have a three-year-old. I've had lots of three-year-olds. <laughs> By lots, I mean three. For the vast majority of Americans, that's more than they'll ever know. <laughs> I, did you I, Did you have any other thoughts on the individuality of children? Nope. Okay. She closes then with this. She says, we think that children have a right to knowledge. And the only thing I have highlighted here is the last line. Did you have any other thoughts? That's all I've got highlighted. So she said... Kant is Immanuel Kant, who was mm-hmm. in the 1700s, and David, or Hume is David Hume, She's, also in 1700s. Yeah, with them, she said, we're not anxious to contend with Kant that the mind possesses certain a priori knowledge, nor with Hume that it holds innate ideas. The more satisfying proposition seems to be that the mind has prehensile adaptations to each department of universal knowledge. That was a lot of really big words. (laughs) We find that children lay hold of all knowledge, which is fitly presented to them with avidity. And therefore, we maintain that a wide and generous curriculum is due to them. And that's what she implores us to give our children, is a wide and generous curriculum. Not just this, not just that, not just one book. Find all the good books. Kind of. Let's find 
a good book on each topic because she doesn't want them reading for the sake of reading. True. It's diving deep, assimilating, and gaining this knowledge. So instead of four biographies on Roosevelt, you read one biography of Roosevelt, one book on the the geology of the Americas. Sure. One book on science. And and so it's not you're only focused on this one person or item or subject or thing, but you have a good living book right. in the various subjects from math to science to philosophy to music to drawing to painting to to all of these things. So not all the good living books. That's not her answer. Okay. That makes sense. Clearly, I haven't studied this as much as you have. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to me still learning about Charlotte Mason. It happens. <laughs> I'm still learning. Too. I just do it more than you. Yeah, I spend my time doing other things. Like trying to make money. It happens. And designing buildings. And trying to figure out why on earth contractors can't read. They didn't have a Charlotte Mason education. I mean, they, that's, they don't that's, have attention to detail that she. Uh, these are these things are obviously true, but we get questions like, "Hey, I see this note here, and I don't know what it means." Like, well, did you read the note? No. Okay, you see in the corner of the drawing where there's a there's a series of numbers. Okay, the, the number that you're pointing out on the plan correlates to the number over there. <laughs> Read the words next to the number. That's going to tell you what that note says. Oh, okay. Sorry if you or someone you know is an electrical contractor or journeyman. I hope to high heaven they're better at reading plans than the people that I have asking me questions because goodness <laughs> migrations, it's rough. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have much else. This is an interesting chapter. And, and at the end of it, I, th- I think it really was, it was a lot of recapping and a lot of rehashing and, and a, a pretty good condensing of a lot of different thoughts and ideas. And I enjoyed reading through it for that. Mm-hmm. It it helps to have the background of the rest of the book. Absolutely. But it could be standalone. It could be. But each of these points, there's there's so much depth that she goes into that in each of these points, it would be sad to me if this is all you ever got. If that's all you ever got. But if this is your very first introduction, it's a very concise introduction. It is. It is. There's, there's, you know, the, the, and the reason we're doing this podcast, people say, you know, go read her volumes, mm-hmm. which are six massive volumes. Uh-huh. That's not approachable. That's not accessible. Right. So there's a, there's a book for the children's sake by Susan Schaefer McCauley, which is one of the other go-to, hey, read this book, which I'm in the process of reading. I actually haven't fully read it yet. <laughs> But but that's given as a, hey, here's an introduction to Charlotte Mason book. It's slightly more approachable, or or like read the principles. But that's that's so broad and so encompassing of everything. Yeah. That I feel like this chapter sums it up. You know, habits, ideas. We'll get to the the nitty gritty later. Mm-hmm. Habits, ideas, books. Right. That that encompasses it. It does. Even cutting out the first half of this chapter to where that that's not a part of it, just making it like a one page or I guess two page short synopsis. A summary, yeah. A blog post, if you will. That's uh, what that's what this is. Of of what the backbone of a Charlotte Mason education is. Because mm-hmm. it touches on um the touches wide feast, everything. the wide and generous curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um we don't recognize um, child nature, so children are are persons mm-hmm. with the dignity and individuality that they possess. 
Um, and talks about loving books. Mm-hmm. I'm going backwards here. And then the main objectives, formation of habit, presentation of ideas. Yeah. With, and she even brings it up here, with the spiritual, with the supreme educator on the forefront. Yeah. So so taking it from, from that middle part on page 228, the educator should form habits and going to the end of the chapter, I, I, I feel like that is very concise and powerful. It is. I think it is. I think there's a lot of value in this chapter. So if you know someone who's interested in Charlotte Mason, if you know someone who's trying to figure out what Charlotte Mason is, you can point them to this podcast, to this episode, <laughs> or you can point them to this chapter to say, hey, you don't have to read this entire book yet. Re- read through this a little bit and let's talk about these these three or four pages. Yeah. And then and then springboard from there. And then you can talk about more things. Plant plant the seed plant of the, the idea seed. that will change their lives. Ideas are important. Ideas are powerful. I have an idea. Let's go to bed early. That ship sailed. <laughs> no, it's only eleven. We can still go to bed early. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. All right. Somewhere in there is an ending. I'll find it and I'll end it. Good night, y'all. I guess that's not a good ending. Nope. Do 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 do.